Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the living God, the speaking God. We pray that you would speak through your word. We pray that you would give us great light. Help us see by your word. As your words are unfolded, we pray that we would let all of that light warm us and encourage us. And we pray that you would take the simplicity of our thinking and give us great understanding of you, your ways, what you desire of us for our good, for your glory. We pray that you would do that work through your word. In Christ's name, today, amen. Amen. Have you fasted enough? Have you fasted enough? That question plagued the Augustinian monk Martin Luther. He believed later in life that his austerity as a monk had done great and permanent damage to his digestion. He said, quote, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my monastic order so strictly that I may say that if ever there was a monk to get to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, fastings, and other work. Many of us know Martin Luther for nailing the 95 Theses to the castle, castle church door in Wittenberg. But we don't know about his fasting earlier in life that plagued him. Many of us have heard of John Calvin and books like The Institutes that he wrote, but many of us don't know that Calvin was thin as a rake. John Calvin was known as a great faster who starved himself constantly. At the best of times, he ate just one small meal a day so as to clear his mind and protect his body, so he thought. But Calvin was relentlessly besieged by ill health. Some of these insights and more come from, there's a man named Kent Burgess. Uh, he's a pastor, he's a PhD student who wrote his doctoral dissertation on fasting in church history. And the overall insight that he came to, I want to share with you. All the years and hours of study and the books he read, you could boil it all down to really just a sentence about fasting in the Christian church. I want to give that to you. Here's what he learned. He said, namely, Christian fasting went from extreme excess to decline. Extreme excess to decline. That's true, isn't it? Today it's almost non-existent. How healthy can the church be without recovering this vital practice? Today in our modern era, we focus more on what biblical fasting would do to our body than our soul. But let's take a bite out of Matthew 6. We have much to learn from Jesus on fasting I wonder what you know about fasting from the Bible. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So go to God's Word. Go to your copy of the Scriptures. Go to Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to look at a few verses today, three verses. Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, just by way of reminder, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. It spans three chapters in Matthew. It's Jesus' most famous sermon. 
And Jesus is aiming to help his listeners display their heavenly citizenship here on earth now. He's showing them how holiness would be operative in their life through this kingdom manifesto. This is a wonderful section that we get to see today. Look with me, beginning in verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. God's word says this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I pray today we would recover and pursue biblical fasting for the right ends. Did you notice that we are in a section that's all about our religious deeds? In fact, if you look, if you put your eyes back in verse 1 of chapter 6, this is the doorway, the archway that you have to walk underneath to hear Jesus' teaching on fasting. So we can't miss the context here. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of that. And when you walk through that archway, you come into a room where Jesus wants to teach you about giving and prayer and fasting. Jesus had already spoken a few verses earlier, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And he taught us how to pray that way. And yet here, he's teaching us something about when we should and shouldn't eat the daily bread that we're so used to praying for. In fact, spiritual consequences of when we should and shouldn't eat, you know this, they're as old as the Garden of Eden, aren't they? The very first command in the whole Bible dealt with food. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that type of eating in the garden wasn't about weight loss or weight gain. It was the type of eating that had great spiritual significance. And here in this passage, Jesus is teaching us about the great spiritual significance of something we can eat and indulge in. It's so sweet to our taste. Jesus is warning his followers here that there's another type of eating, a type of indulging. It's that tempting, sweet taste of religious hypocrisy. He wants you to be rid of that taste from your mouth. And so in our passage today, Jesus actually presents three different ways that we, we could hunger for something. And I want to show you that in our passage. He's going to show us that something we should not hunger for. It's negative. It's a warning. And then he's going to show us two things that we should hunger for. We should crave an expectation and an encouragement. He's going to give us a diagnostic of our appetites. He's going to help us see what are we craving. So here they are. Here's the structure of the passage and the way we'll move through it this morning. The first warning, the negative thing that we should not hunger for, we'll, we'll use the form of a question for these. It's found in verse 16. 
The question is this, do you hunger for human praise? Do you hunger for human praise? That's the first thing we're going to look at. Then we're going to move to verse 17 and ask the question, do you hunger for wise, loving instruction? Do you hunger for wise, loving instruction? And then we're going to move to verse 18 and get encouragement. And it's in the form of a question. Do you hunger for God himself with his promised reward? Do you hunger for God himself with his promised reward? I hope this diagnostic of your appetites is helpful for you spiritually. And we're going to be using the word fasting a lot, so let's just define it before we jump into these things. Christian fasting is voluntarily abstaining from food temporarily for biblical spiritual purposes. Christian fasting is voluntarily abstaining from food temporarily for biblical spiritual purposes. We're going to see in a moment, can it be something beyond food? We're going to see this. Food is a good gift of God, is it not? It's a good gift. It tastes good. It's for enjoyment. It's for our sustenance. Many of you, by hearing the word fasting or weight loss, weight gain, and and dieting, you think about diets that you've hungered for in the past. Maybe it's the Mediterranean diet, keto, you've heard of that, paleo, whole 30. Things ebb and flow in our culture, don't they? The flexitarian diet. There's many diets out there. Do you hunger for using food in a way that God wants you to? You can be interested and curious and follow a strict regimen of what maybe the world comes up with or a nutritionist or maybe even your doctor, but do you hunger for what God would prescribe, what he would lay out for what he wants you to do with food? This passage shows us that. But it begins with a negative warning. It begins with a warning for not so much food but human praise. So let's look at this first warning in verse 16. Do you hunger for human praise? Look again at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. This reminds me of when children want to skip school. Maybe you're a parent or grandparent and you've had a child want to skip school, whether it's homeschool, private, public, charter, whatever. Have you ever seen a kid play hooky and try to miss school? What they do with their face? They really act and pretend like they're sick. Or maybe if you don't have children, you can think back to that movie in 1986 that is still popular in some measures today, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Some of you have seen this movie. I'm not saying that everything in that movie is good. I'm not saying you need to go watch it. Actually, all you need to know from that movie, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. There's a way to fake out parents. So parents, listen up. Children, listen up as well. Ferris Bueller, according to him, he says, the key to faking out parents, if you want to miss school, He says, fake a stomach cramp, then when you're bending over, lick your palms. If you lick each one of your palms, it's going to look like you have clammy hands. That's the key. He warns if you say that you have a fever, watch out, they may try to send you to the doctor. That's his advice. Maybe a kid does jumping jacks. They start sweating and they hop in bed and they call, mom, dad. They're sweating. 
oh, I'm so, uh, I'm so, I don't feel good, fake cough a few times. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Pharisees are doing in verse 16. Look again at verse 16. It's filled to the brim with that kind of exaggeration and, and fake performance. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. This is religious charades. Look at me, I'm fasting. That word gloomy, maybe your translation says one of these other words. Maybe your translation says sullen or miserable or somber or sad. Those are all good translations. The word gets at the idea of this facial expression and this attitude that's one of sadness and being sullen. But it's a game. It's fake. It's not fully true to the reality of how they're feeling. It's what the hypocrites do. They, they're disheveled and unkempt. In fact, did you see how verse 16 said, they disfigure their faces? What does that mean? Back in the first century, there would be those who would put ash on their face and spread it on their face. They wouldn't wash their face and they would spread that ash out there to look like they had been fasting and in this time of grief and mourning. And it was so deceptive. You know why? Because in the first century, this was actually expected. This was expected of fasting. Have you ever thought about when people hunger for the Lord in the Old Testament, some of the things they did? It's, it's interesting. There's an overlap with what they did and what people in the first century who hungered for human praise would do. In fact, the Pharisees, when they say in Luke 18, I fast twice a week, we know that that wasn't a biblical command. You know how we know that? Because in the Old Testament, there was only one day that fasting was commanded. Some of you know what that day was. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Israel would fast that whole day, that high and holy day, to turn their attention to the Lord. But by the time Jesus was on the scene, there were those who would be fasting multiple days a week. They would make a show of it. And just like in the Old Testament, at times when someone would wear sackcloth and ashes and, and show great humility, the Pharisees were putting that on as a cloak. In the Old Testament, voluntary fast were a time to intensely seek the Lord. They were appropriate for grief, for repentance, for humbling oneself. And here, the Pharisees and the hypocrites take advantage of that. If you want to read more about fasting, there's many places in the Old Testament you can go to. Daniel 9, Daniel 10, Esther, Ezra. You can go all over the Old Testament. 1 Samuel. We're not going to look at all those passages now. But it suffice to say, if we just grab a passage like Daniel 9 and 10, we see that Daniel, when he was in exile, one of the things he did when he was fasting for three weeks is it says he didn't eat any delicacies no wine, and it also says he didn't anoint himself. It gives us a clue that the daily practice of a Jew, of a Hebrew, was just to anoint themselves. But when he fasted, he didn't anoint himself. He didn't care about what he looked like. There was no show, there was no game. The Pharisees want to pervert that. The hypocrites want to pervert that and draw attention. They hunger, why? They hunger what? What are they doing? Why are they doing all this? Well, you can see the second half of verse 16. They hunger for human praise. 
They look sad and disfigure their face that their fasting may be seen by others. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So this passage begs the question for us, whom are you trying to please in your religious deeds? Maybe you've never spread ashes over your face or your forehead. But the principle here runs deep into all the religious practices that you could possibly be doing. Whom are you trying to please? We may not paint our face or moan, but we might do the flip side of that. We might just talk about what we're doing a lot, boasting. We might, maybe we complain. We try to be noticed by others. Do you hunger for human praise in your religious deeds? I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't just rebuke the hypocrites and leave us wondering, wow, I guess we shouldn't hunger for human praise. What do we do if we do want to fast? If we want to fast, are we not allowed to look sad in any way? I mean, it's, un- it's uncomfortable to fast, isn't it? Well, that's why Jesus moves to this next verse, verse 17. Look with me. Here's the positive appetite. Here's what we should hunger for. We should hunger for wise, loving instruction. That's what Jesus gives us in verse 17. Wise, loving instruction. Verse 17 says this, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Jesus tells them, don't alter your routine when you're fasting and how you look. Don't look miserable. Don't look like you're suffering. Don't neglect your appearance. Instead, what he's getting at, if you want to put this in modern day tongue, He's saying, don't look like a hungry scavenger. Use the body wash, the deodorant, the hair gel, the things you always do every day. Just keep doing that on the day you happen to be fasting. Don't draw any extra attention to your fasting. That's what Jesus means by verse 17. Anoint your head, wash your face. The Jews, the original audience hearing this, they would have heard in verse 17, oh, Make it a normal day. Yep, use shampoo and conditioner if you use both. They would have heard, just be normal. Verse 17 holds out to us this this clear meaning, but we can get so caught up in the second half of verse 14 that we miss, and this is where we're going to camp out, on the first four verses. Four words. We miss the grand expectation, the wise, loving instruction of the first four words of verse 17. This is what we should hunger for. One of the clues in our passage that this is so important to, to camp out on for a moment and explain to you is because it's the second time it's been said. Did you notice verse 16 and verse 17 are stated in the form of an expectation? Jesus expects you to be fasting. He says, and when you fast. He doesn't say if you happen to do it. He doesn't say it's optional. Jesus expects fasting will be found in his followers. So this may feel a little uncomfortable. But to be faithful to the text, I've got to ask myself and all of us listening, do we fast? Is this a practice of our following Jesus? I'm not asking if you once fasted, you know, the first year or two you were a Christian. I'm asking now, is this a practice in your Christian life? 
Let's let the light of Christ shine on our excuses, our justifications, and our good reasons. Because as we're going to see in a moment, there, there might be reasons to not fast from food. But let's let the light of Christ shine on all those things in our hearts. Instead of seeing Christ's expectation here as punishment or optional, do you hunger and hear it as wise, loving instruction? I mean, how could it be wise and loving to be uncomfortable when you fast and you temporarily abstain from food? Well, I like how one Bible scholar said it this way. He said, fasting is not a no to the goodness of food or the generosity of God in providing it. Rather, it is a way of saying from time to time that having more of the giver surpasses the gift. Normally, we meet God in his good gifts and turn every enjoyment into worship with thanksgiving. But from time to time, we need to test ourselves to see if we have begun to love the gifts in place of God. Just to be clear, some of you cannot fast for health reasons. You can't fast from food for health reasons, and I understand that. But a vast majority of you aren't in that category. There is a broader view of fasting. If you've ever read Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney, he mentions this in his chapter on fasting. A pastor in England, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he went through this Sermon on the Mount, he mentioned this idea as well. There are things to do beyond food. In fact, it's kind of like what I was told in my youth group growing up in a very large Southern Baptist church. I wasn't even given the option of fasting from food. We were taught about fasting in our youth group, and it was just, hey, would you fast from your phone or TV or media, electronics? Food wasn't even on our radar as as an option. That broad view can be helpful. In fact, here's what Don Whitney says. He's a Bible scholar. He says, that when Christians live in a gluttonous, denialless, self-indulgent society, they may struggle to accept and begin the practice of fasting. Few disciplines go so radically against the flesh and the mainstream of our culture as this one. When there's things exerting too much influence upon our heart, fasting can help us regain a biblical perspective. Before we move on to verse 18, Let's just pause for a little bit longer. Let's linger. And I hope this is not uncomfortable to linger here. We're going to linger for just a little bit on this phrase, and when you fast. Because if you're like me, or if you're like most of the Christians you've been around growing up, if you were to ask somebody, hey, give me all the reasons, the benefits, the good reasons, the the wise, loving instruction of why we should be fasting, There's a famine of knowledge for why we should even do it. So let me give you a few. We're going to move through this very fast. Very fast. Here are six things, six ideas, thoughts, for why fasting, biblical fasting, can be such a wise and loving thing for your spiritual life. Six things. Number one, flexibility. Useful flexibility. Jesus, in this passage, all he says is, and when you fast. He doesn't say it's a certain month of the year. He doesn't say how long the fast has to be. He doesn't give the duration and frequency of fasting. He he leaves it an open door for flexibility. 
so that it could fit in a Christian's life no matter what kind of season of life they are in. He doesn't prescribe how long. In the Bible, we see examples of a day of fasting, a portion of a day, just a meal. Yes, we see miraculous fasts in the Bible like Moses on Mount Sinai, 40 days, no food, no water. That's supernatural. Don't attempt that. That was special for that moment of redemptive history, the 40 days, no food and water. But fasting generally, whether it's, as I've heard of a college student doing, once a month, the first Monday of every month. I knew of a college student who did that. Whether you think, oh, I like the way uh, five and fasting both have the letter F. I think I'm going to fast on the fifth of every other month. Or whether you just fast just before Easter for a meal or a day. Or whether you fast for three days. There's all kinds of ways to fast. And Jesus gives us flexibility in it. You remember how when we talked about prayer last Sunday, Jesus didn't get into the particulars of you need to do prayer walks, you need to have a prayer journal. No, Jesus just talked about prayer in terms of our motive of the heart and the content of what we speak. And he left the rest up to our Christian walk. What's going to work for us as we obey? Same is true with fasting. Don't be tempted to think what one Christian does is what you have to do when you fast. That's all the first one. Fasting is useful in its flexibility. It's also wise and loving for, number two, it brings strength. It brings strength. And this can sound counterintuitive. What do you, what do you mean it brings strength? I thought if I'm abstaining from food for a little bit, wouldn't that make me temporarily weak? Well, it adds strength and intensity to our prayer and meditation and seeking God, our spiritual alertness. Number three, fasting. It's wise and loving because it prepares us and trains us with little s suffering. I'm not talking capital S suffering where someone's trying to kill you or they've thrown you in jail for your your Christian faith. This is little s suffering. The discomfort of fasting changes our heart. It prepares you to suffer well. It prepares you to suffer well even before old age. It's worthy of pausing to say thank you to our senior adults and even those of you who wouldn't consider yourself a senior adult. Thank you to those of you who are following hard after Christ despite countless aches, pains, health problems. Thank you for following the Lord and serving him and being here and showing hospitality. Some of those who are younger can't even imagine what it would be like to to have such intense pain every day they wake up. Perhaps fasting is that little s type of suffering that would get our hearts ready. Imagine what would happen if you practice fasting in the quote-unquote the prime of your life when you feel most healthy, most vibrant. Wouldn't that give you greater empathy with those around you who do have health problems? Wouldn't that slow you down? Wouldn't that give you a different perspective of what tempts you? Don't you know it to be true that when you've ever tried to resist temptation, what does it feel like? Suffering. It feels like dying to self when you resist temptation, doesn't it? Well, fasting is that little s suffering, that that miniature moment where you voluntarily suffer in discomfort for a temporary moment, imagine what that does to your heart, how that would strengthen, fortify your heart. It's actually a training 
regimen, if you will. It helps you in self-control. If you've ever struggled with self-control with any sin in any area, perhaps fasting would be a wonderful means to help boost your self-control. Fasting trains us. Number four, fasting gives us perspective. Fasting, it's wise and loving. We should hunger for it because it gives us perspective. When you're fasting, you're taking your eyes off material goods like food or something else that you're fasting from to cultivate contentment and thankfulness in your heart. It changes your perspective of what, of what a meal is. If you fast from something like sleep, and some of you who struggle with sleep think, how could somebody ever fast from sleep? Well, some of you who sleep great every single night, perhaps maybe you would fast from sleep to pray to the Lord, to search the scriptures. There's fasting of many different types. Primarily, though, the Bible wants it to be food. So start there. Don't just run to the alternatives. If you can do food, go there. If you start with food, fasting will change your thankfulness for the meals that you do eat on the other side of it. Fasting gives great perspective, great contentment. Number five, fasting breeds humility. Fasting breeds humility. It's wise and loving because all throughout the scriptures, nearly every single time fasting is mentioned, it's a humble activity. In fact, the only time it's, it's not a humble thing is here in verse 16 that we just read, the Pharisees doing it in a hypocritical way, and the passage Jaron read for us earlier where there was this cloak of fasting to pursue wicked deeds. Everywhere else in Scripture, it is a thing of full humility. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord says, Return to me with all your heart with fasting. Prayer, rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not just your garments. It's fitting for humility when there's godly grief or when there's sadness, when there's loss. It's a way to worship the Lord. It's a deliberate posture. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, Ezra proclaims a fast by the river. And when he does it, the scriptures say he's proclaiming this fast that we might humble ourselves. Imagine if you wanted to humble yourself before the Lord before Wednesday of this coming week. I mean, what, what would you start doing between now and Wednesday? You, for some reason, you're, you're like, I, I need to be humble. And you just think, I need to be humble by Wednesday. Well, fasting is probably the primary means that would greatly humble you. It would slow you down. Maybe you would get headaches from, from abstaining from food temporarily. Maybe you would feel like you have a loss of energy. It certainly would zap you from the boastful, jovial nature where you're jumping around, talking, being prideful, constantly joking, can't be serious. Fasting would radically sober your thinking, wouldn't it? Fasting breeds humility. And then number six, lastly, fasting creates opportunities to help others. Fasting creates opportunity to help others. This is why it's such a wise and loving practice in our Christian lives. And I hope you hunger for it for this reason. Opportunity to help others. Think about the, the sweet interconnectivity of giving prayer and fasting that Jesus has just been teaching on here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgo a meal 
Well, then you didn't spend money on that meal that day. You could pray while you're not eating, and then you could give that money to someone in need. All fits together hand in glove, doesn't it? And it's not just money. You could give that meal to someone, or maybe you would forgo a meal so that in that time that you would have eaten and prepared food or gone out to buy food, whatever you do for food, you could have used that time to go serve another brother and sister who's in need. Our Christian service and fasting are not at odds. We can conclude all six of these benefits that are wise and loving that we should hunger for. We could conclude them all by saying, fasting is an exercise of self-control. And the scriptures tell us God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. And the fruit of the spirit, as we're going to see in the book of Galatians in the coming weeks, the fruit of the spirit is self-control, among other fruit. So, therefore, the Holy Spirit within the Christian gladly resonates with fasting. Do you feel dry in your walk with God? Maybe the Lord's calling you to start the practice of fasting. Do you want to be near to the Lord? Perhaps fasting is a path. Do you hunger for this wise, loving instruction? Do you believe Jesus is telling you, verse 17, not as a a little bit of trivia, hey, I want to show you what Jews in the first century should have done. He's talking to you today. He expects it of his followers today. The kingdom manifesto in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is true for your entire life as you sojourn on earth. It's not just true for one century. It's true for the church all the way until we get to glory. We'll see in a little bit. In heaven, there is no fasting. You have a limited opportunity to practice fasting now. Some of us, if our doctor said, you must change how you eat for your health, and they showed us some test results, we would do it in a heartbeat. But some of us, if Christ, the great physician, told us to fast for the health of our soul, we'd say, nah, that's optional. It's not just for the super holy Christians. It's not just for those who want to have a breakthrough in their spiritual life. This is supposed to be the normal rhythm of a Christian. Don't get it twisted by normal. I don't mean you have to fast every week or every month. Maybe you just fast one day of the year like the Jews did in the Old Testament. But you should be able to look at your life and your walk with the Lord and see fasting somewhere I wonder if you hunger for this wise, loving instruction. I wonder what would happen if we began to ask one another periodically, ever so often, hey, are you, are you enjoying the Lord through fasting? Hey, how, how is obedience to the Lord going in that area? And some of you might, might grab this verse and say, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. We're not supposed to tell other people when we're fasting. And the text would say to you, I know that. But that doesn't mean you can't tell people what you have done in the past because this passage is not meant to fight with the Great Commission. The end of Matthew's Gospel, do you know what he says? When he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how does the Great Commission end? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, which includes fasting. 
So if you play the game, I'm not allowed to ever mention fasting to others or tell them my fasting practices, you're forgetting what the Great Commission is asking you to do. All of us, families, parents, grandparents, church members, pastors, it's okay to talk about past practices of fasting in order to help and instruct others. Perhaps that's why there's such a famine of it. We don't talk about it. Perhaps you don't do it because it wasn't talked about to you when you were growing up as a Christian. Let this passage be a gentle, patient reminder to bring this into your Christian walk. We'll move on to the next verse. Before we do, I can't help but mention this. It's so good. I was talking to a Christian man this week. He's seasoned in his faith. And I asked him, when did you begin fasting? And he described that he heard his pastor preach on it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm tearing up because that man was my dad. I asked him this week, Dad, I was trying to keep you under the radar for this sermon. Sorry. I asked this Christian man this week, when did you begin fasting? And he talked about when his pastor, the church we grew up in, taught on fasting, and he said the breakthrough for him was when he learned quote, you're replacing something good with something better. He said it reminds you of your need. He said it's, it's not an empty time where you're just not doing something and you're angry and frustrated because you're not doing what you wanted to do but you're filling that time up with something beneficial and good. You don't just cease to eat and be miserable, but you do something during that time. So as a kid growing up, whenever I would see a bunch of different types of juice, fruit juice in the fridge, I knew my dad was fasting. But that's because we asked him. He didn't broadcast it. We asked him one day, you know, what, what's the juice? I don't know what it looks like for you. Fasting can look, again, it's flexible, many different ways. I hope you're fasting. The last question we come to is something we should hunger for. We may fear fasting or we may have forgotten the practice, but verse 18 holds forth wonderful encouragement. Verse 18 is the question, are you hungry for God himself with his promised reward? If so, that's an encouragement to fasting, is it not? Look at verse 18. Let's all put our eyes there, verse 18. That your fasting, there it is, Jesus expects it again, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is that training ground for living and expressing devotion to God in the realm of the unseen. Things that are unseen are eternal. Things that are seen are temporary, are transient. If you're thinking, I'm doing okay as a Christian without having ever fasted or rarely, you're speaking out of ignorance for what God does want to do in your life. The Father sees in secret. The Father 
will reward you. That's the key motivation. That's where all of this lands. Because this phrase has been repeated about giving, prayer, and fasting throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you do this, if you practice this the right way, you can trust that your Father will reward you. Your opportunity to fast is only in this life, as we mentioned. When you are in heaven and you are in the fullness of God's presence, as much as you can handle as a created being and you, you drink in the fullness of God's presence, Psalm 16, tells us there is fullness of joy in your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That means there's no fasting. We only fast while the bridegroom is away, as Jesus taught his disciples. What a way to show that we hunger and thirst for that final feast, that marriage supper of the Lamb that is unending. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. Whoever would please him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is nothing new for Jesus to say that the Father rewards this type of living. A question hanging over this section is, do you really believe the Lord rewards living this way? Do you want and seek that reward? This actually is where the text brings us to the gospel. Because we are all living for some kind of reward, whether we say it out loud or not. Some of us, the reward is just the praise of other people. Some of us, the reward is we just do whatever we want to do. That's rebellion before God. And ever since Genesis, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, going their own way, thinking, I'm going to take of this fruit. It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It's going to make me wise. That's going to be a reward. They chose their own thinking for what good rewards are rather than what God had said. We have all sinned that way. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus didn't live that way, veering off for some kind of reward other than what the Father promises. You know how Jesus lived in the Gospels. John 4, 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He said that in the moment where the disciples were trying to get him to eat. You haven't eaten. Come on, eat, eat. Jesus said, my will, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he didn't just talk a good game, he backed it up. He went all the way to the cross, stretched out his arms, and was nailed to the tree. He poured out his blood in place of all sinners who would turn to him, turn away from their rebellion and turn to him and, and trust that he is their atonement. He is their blood sacrifice to shield them from the wrath of God and to cleanse them and forgive them. And he rose from the grave showing that he is victorious, he can be trusted. And he calls everyone, everywhere. Maybe you're listening to the sermon and you think, why do Christians fast? I mean, I heard Muslims fast, they have Ramadan. Hello, Christians fast not to earn any favor with God. It's not performance. Christians fast because Christ has called us to and because our hearts have been so transformed by his grace that we're willing to take moments to show we love the giver more than the gifts. That's why Christians fast. What would cause you to give up something good or something greater? Well, it happens when you're in love with someone, doesn't it? If you're in love with someone, maybe you'll stay up late and miss sleep or you'll sacrifice money to get them a gift. You, 
You do all kinds of sacrifices and abstain from certain things to go after your reward. Christians, our reward is always in all of our spiritual disciplines to be with the Father, to be like Christ, to have fellowship with our Trinitarian God. Let's let that be the reward we're going for. Jesus promises that he sees and rewards fasting. The irony, some of us, Maybe we're thinking about lunch right now and we're ready for this to be over. Well, we are to the end. It is over. Let's conclude by saying this. Don't hunger for human praise. Hunger for the wise, loving instruction of God. Trust him. Hunger for God himself and his reward. Because... On the day of final judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're judged for all the deeds done in the body and the deeds left undone, what if Jesus looks you in the eye and says to you, why didn't you fast? Why didn't you fast? I had so much reward for you. And then every tear is wiped away from every eye. We go into eternity. Why didn't you fast? I had, I had so much reward for you. Thinking about that question carefully creates a certain type of appetite. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We love your instruction. We thank you for teaching us, being so patient with us. Help us, Lord, to grow in biblical fasting. Show us how to do that. Help us in our fears of that. Help us to learn by experience your wisdom. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending your son, Christ, to obey your will perfectly, to have his food be doing your will. May that be our food as well. In Christ's name, amen.